Good evening and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're always thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America, is part of Bernard and Irene Schwartz's Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'm always thrilled to thank, uh, we always want to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his great support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. We also want to thank you for coming out on the cold night and braving whatever sidewalks um, may have not been cleared. Uh, we, Whenever we have a storm, we've had a few of them where we have a program, um, we always have a smaller crowd, but, but the crowd is a more dedicated, devoted, <laughs> intense crowd, and we, we always have a great time. So when I woke up this morning, I was thinking, I can't wait to get to the program tonight. So I'd also like to recognize, besides Mr. Schwartz, our Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. And let's give Mr. Schwartz and all our Chairman's Council members a hand. So our program lasts an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. And the Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. So if you haven't received a note card yet, we will have staff uh, coming back and forth to hand out cards and pencils. And then they'll come back and collect them a little later on, and uh, we'll get them to our moderator. There'll be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of Eitan Micheli's new book will be available for sale in our museum store. So we're thrilled to welcome Eitan Micheli, Micheli, okay, to New York Historical Society. Mr. Micheli is an award-winning author, publisher, and journalist, and an international expert on housing, criminal justice, and civil rights. He was copy editor and investigative reporter for the Chicago Defender from 1991 to 96, where he reported on homelessness, environmental racism, and police brutality. His work has earned awards from the Chicago Association of Black Journalists and the Muhammad Ali Foundation. His new book, The Defender, was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review and the Washington Post. So thank you. We're looking forward to hearing all about your book. Our moderator this evening is Brent Staples, who brought Eitan Micheli's book and Eitan to us tonight, to our attention. Mr. Staples writes on politics, race, housing, juvenile justice, and prison policy for the New York Times editorial board. Prior to joining the editorial page in 1990, he served as the editor of the New York Times Book Review and worked as a science writer for the Chicago Sun-Times. His memoir, Parallel Time, was the winner of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. His, editorial and e his editorials and essays are included in dozens of college readers throughout the U.S. and abroad. So Brent Staples, we welcome you too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just uh, before we begin, I just want to remind everyone to turn off cell phones, beepers, and now join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Thank you, Hardy crew, for coming out. Um, 
And I'm pleased to, to finally meet you after writing about you and uh, talking to you on the phone and so on. Reading the, your Defender book, it's an uh, extraordinary account of the real golden age of the black press in America, I was taken back to my childhood uh, because as a child in the 1950s and 60s, um, I had an uncle, my uncle Johnny Swain, was a distributor of black newspapers in, south, in the southeastern part of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Uh, he was a, you know, came north in the Great Migration, and he was interested in newspapers. And um, the local county newspaper, the Delaware County Daily Times, would not allow black subscribers, I mean black distributors. And so he began his business um, selling black newspapers. Mm. And sometimes these big bundles would appear in my living room <laughs> floor. Uh, I actually lived in the house we rented from my uncle, so the distribution was doing very well for him. Gotcha. And he did the, the, he did the Courier, the Baltimore Afro-American. He did the Defender. He was a charter distributor of Jet Magazine, one of the first in the United States. Um, it is difficult to convey in 2017 how racist the traditional American press was when I was a child. It's difficult to convey. Uh, but I have a few examples here to show you. Into the 1950s, when I was a boy, half the newspapers in the United States and the South did not deny black men and women the courtesy titles Mr. and Mrs. Because they, they referred to them by first names so white readers could know they were black and discount what they had to say. Um, in the South in particular, Negroes were invisible in the paper, many papers, uh, including the, the famous New Orleans Times-Picayune paper, had rules that black people could not appear on the front page. Um, and when there was, in places where there was a big black middle class and they deigned to have black people in the newspapers, they had separate Jim Crow sections. They had colored birth announcements and things called the colored news. So reading the white press at that time was a constant source of humiliation to black people. The papers my uncle distributed were another matter. The Baltimore African-American, for example, owned by the Murphy family, famous middle-class affluent family in Baltimore. Uh, one, of the, one of the Murphy heirs is now, uh, I think, the bishop of the AME church, Vashti Turley Murphy. This is who these people are. If you were looking at the Baltimore African-American, you could see um, what was happening with... Um, black intellectuals around the globe, you know, Richard Wright in Paris. You could read the accounts of the cabaret singer Josephine Baker, you know, strolling through the streets of Paris with her cheetah straining at the end of his leash. Um, you could see, you know, the film now, um, Hidden Figures. You could read about mathematicians at NASA. You learned in the black press that black scientists actually worked in the Manhattan Project. And so, there was no contest between the racist view of black people in the white press and the full, full portrait of, as I say, Bronzeville high and low that you got 
in black newspapers. So these, you know, this, I, I was brought back to that, you know, while I was reading your book and, and writing your review, and I really, really enjoyed it. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I gave a great review, and every word of it's true. So tell me, how did you tell the readers how you came to work with a defender? Uh, and as they, could, as they could probably tell, you are white. <laughs> but in fact, a lot of black papers had, did have inter interracial staff, particularly the Pittsburgh Courier. It had white people on it, Asians, very diverse staff. But tell me, how did you come to work at the defender? So I uh, attended the University of Chicago and I got a degree in English literature mm -hmm. and uh, graduated in 1989 with dreams of becoming a novelist. Mm -hmm. But as I scanned um, the, the one ads for, um, uh, for ads that would be appropriate for an aspiring novelist, they were very thin. Uh -huh. um, a friend of mine who was also a white Jewish University of Chicago grad uh, recommended me to replace him at a newspaper uh, called the Chicago Defender. I had never heard of it, frankly, and my first question was, is it a communist newspaper? If he, <laughs> if he had said yes, I probably would have been excited um, <laughs> at the time. Um, but uh, he said it was an African-American-owned newspaper, and to be very honest, it just didn't register to me as something significant, mm -hmm. because I thought that we were in, I thought then that we were in a post-racial era, and I thought that uh, the problems of, of race in America had basically been dealt with and that um, some newspapers were going to have white owners and some newspapers were going to have black owners. It was really only when I walked through the door of this beautiful old building on 24th Street and Michigan Avenue in Chicago um, and saw the historic copies of the newspaper in a glass case going back to the beginning of the 20th century and saw Robert Abbott's portrait um, uh, uh, glaring down at me um, in, in the lobby, and saw his words inscribed in the floor that I really started to understand that I was somewhere special. I should say that when I sat down for the interview with uh, the city editor, Alberta Leake, my very first question to her, which she, she remembered um, uh, very clearly, was, uh, do white people work here? Um, and I meant it in the most respectful way possible uh, for a job interview in mm -hmm. that I didn't want to waste her time if it was a, a position that was mm -hmm. um, uh, supposed to go to an African-American. And, and Alberta, to her credit, laughed uh, heartily and, and said, white people have always worked at the Defender. And that just intrigued me all the more and made me feel that this was really somewhere that I needed to know more about. Um, I didn't at the time imagine that it would be the transformative experience that it really was for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's as um, one of the things, uh, I don't know if any of you follow me on Twitter here. Uh, a lot of my Twitter followers I sent out messages to today. And once a month I tweet a message on my Twitter feed and it goes as follows. History is the only education. Everything else is just training. So the history of America, you, you cannot read, even the New York Times, right? I've been working in the New York Times, uh, bless my heart, 32 years. And so I have, I have great respect for the institution. But at the same time, to read the history of America, you have to read the white newspapers side by side with the black one. 
because the story for so long, the story of black America was only told in its fullness in black newspapers. One of the uh, striking sections of your book, um, because New York City is, of course, a hotbed of FDR mm. fans um, because of the New Deal. But, and Doris Kearns Goodwin's here a lot, yes. right? But, you know, FDR comes into office, right? He comes into office uh, to, to, to save the nation from the Depression. He's under pressure at this time, and you, you tell this part of the story very well. He's under pressure to desegregate the armed forces because there's units in the army that are black units in the army, right? Blacks are held separate. They live separately. They train separately. They eat separately. In many cases, they had separate transportation on, air, on military bases, even separate theaters. You know? And so he's under pressure to, by the black press to desegregate the armed forces. And instead of desegregating them, what he does is he spreads segregation throughout. You know, it comes out of the army. It's in the Marines. It's in the, it's in the Air Force. And so suddenly he, sends, he, sends, he sets up Jim, Jim Crow segregation all around the country. And the black papers begin to rail about this. And they rail, and they rail, and they rail. And one thing you see in the black papers at this time is the recurrent theme in their editorial cartoon sections. You'll see like a cartoon and various variations of Hirohito, Emperor Hirohito of Japan, and um, Hitler on one side. And they'll be reading a paper, and the paper will have headlines about lynchings in the American South. And they'll be patting each other on the back laughing because they were, you know, they were basically impeaching the American sense of superiority and values. But these were in black newspapers only, and some communist newspapers. So FDR is under pressure. And for black, and he denied black reporters admission to the black press corps until the last of his 12 years in office. How was it that he came to finally admit them? And what role did the defender play in that? Well, first I should probably uh, go back a little bit to say that the Defender was founded in 1905 as a counter-propaganda vehicle against the white-owned press at the time, especially the white-owned press in the South where the overwhelming majority of African Americans lived. Mm -hmm. White-owned newspapers at the time, uh, first of all, there were black-owned newspapers all throughout the South, but they were heavily monitored sure. and I would say censored right. in the sense that um, any, there were times that, that publishers wrote something or published something that was uh, straightforward about the race issue, they would immediately face retribution from, even, even lynching from, uh, from the white uh, uh, oligarchs of, of the area. So the Defender was, in, in many cases, the, the white-owned newspapers would um, do things like print directions to lynchings. They would say, there will be a lynching Friday at noon in this place, don't be late. So the defender comes as a way to strike back against that kind of, of, of media noise, that kind of propaganda. And the defender does that by publishing the truth. Um, they do not have the access that the white-owned, that the, the, the large white-owned newspapers, the northern um, uh, white-owned newspapers, the New York Times, of course, and uh, was, was then as it is now, the... the uh, the premier newspaper in the country, um, 
So the African-American newspapers could not get that kind of access. They could not interview the president. They could not get to the cabinet secretaries. They could not um, get interviews, um, even with, with top officials. They were just ignored by, by uh, the white power structure. So the publisher of the Chicago Defender, John Sengstack, um, and the other publishers of the black press were very determined to point out all of the um, uh, uh, horrors and injustices of, of the segregated military and the segregated system in, in the country as a whole, and were very much interested in pointing out the contrast between a country that was putatively fighting for freedom and democracy overseas but did not provide freedom and democracy to all of its citizens at home. This came to a confrontation shortly after the war actually broke out, shortly after Pearl Harbor, between the publisher of the Defender, John Sengstack, and Attorney General Francis Biddle, who brought Mr. Sengstack in for a meeting in Washington, D.C., and essentially threatened to shutter the black press to, um, uh, to make it a, um, uh, to even uh, 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 stop publication, ban publication throughout the country. And Mr. Sengstack, to his credit, who was only 28 years old at that time, and was that young? He was he was a young man, and he'd already um, his his uh, uncle Robert Abbott, who'd founded the newspaper, had died just uh, two years earlier, and it had was a kind of chaotic situation with the ownership of the newspaper. Mr. Abbott's wife, um, who was not Mr. Sengstack's aunt, mm -hmm. um, was trying to seize control of the newspaper, and so he actually didn't have formal control of the newspaper at this particular moment. But he sits down with Francis Biddle. Francis Biddle threatens to, to censor and shutter the black press. And John Sengstack says, you have the power to do that. Go ahead and try it. But what you'll be doing is you will be shutting off an avenue in which 10 million African Americans in this country can support the war effort. If you give us access, if you go the other way from censorship and you give us access, so that we can actually get interviews with people in power, with uh, the cabinet secretaries, with the president even, then we can start printing articles that will um, make the country understand that this really is a battle for everybody, a mm -hmm. battle for freedom and democracy in the country um, and in the world. And to Attorney General Biddle's credit, he decides to take Mr. Sengstack up on that offer. And he um, uh, begins to work overtly and covertly with, uh, with John Sengstack to, um, uh, to get the black press into the Washington establishment. It's Attorney General Biddle and Mr. Sengstack that, um, uh, that orchestrate the first African-American reporter in the uh, in the White House press corps. And this was done, uh, this had to be done around the, the wishes of FDR's uh, press secretary, Steve Early, who's got a Confederate background in his family and is not particularly friendly to the black press. They do this by, um, uh, he, uh, Steve Early raises the objection um, when they propose putting a black reporter in the... In From the, the Atlanta Daily World. Yes. Well, this is Harry McAlpin, who's initially, who had worked for the Defender for many years. Um, but Steve Early said, well, it, you have to be a member of a daily newspaper before you uh, can be a member of the White House press corps. 
So uh, Mr. Sangstack says, I know what I'll do. And he um, uh, has McAlpin let go from the Defender and then hired by the Atlanta Daily World with um, uh, the Defender paying his salary and the Defender uh, and all the other black newspapers getting the benefit of Harry McAlpin's reporting. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Harry McAlpin gets into the White House press corps. He's not welcomed by Steve Early or by the white members of the, of the press corps who purposefully ignore him and don't give him the courtesies of, of a new reporter to that august group. But President Roosevelt acts differently. President Roosevelt, when he sees McAlpin there, um, the first day. The first day he sees McAlpin there uh, makes a point of reaching out to McAlpin and shaking his hand. And I think this is a very significant gesture. The, crit the critique of, of FDR, I think, is on target. Mm -hmm. He could have done more. He didn't do as much as he, as he promised, and he didn't do um, everything that he could have done, for sure. But that said, I think it was a significant gesture to have a man, a white man who was also a disabled white man, reaching up to an African-American reporter and shaking his hand in front of the entire press corps. I think it was meant as a significant gesture. Well, it was a significant gesture, uh, especially since the, the white press was harassing McAlpin. Yes. Uh, McAlpin was a Southerner, a very patient man. The first day's press conference, the first day's first press conference with Roosevelt, the, the head of the, uh, think about that a little bit, the, the head of the, um, of the White House press corps called McAlpin in and said to him, uh, we know, and this is almost verbatim, he said to him, we know President Roosevelt has given you credentials. At that point, it was actually in the hands of the president to give them out and his staff. He said, we know the president has given you credentials. So we can't do anything about that. But we prefer that you not come into the press conference because there might be a riot if you bumped into the other white reporters. And McAlpin <laughs> said that by all, and he said, he said, you just wait outside and we'll bring you the story. And up to that point, the black reporters for the black press basically had to patrol the sidewalk outside the White House waiting for white reporters to bring the story. And McAlpin said, uh, he said, if there was going to be a riot in the White House press corps, he really wanted to be there to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he came, he came in, into the press conference. And, you know, after thinking about this for some decades, you know, yeah. I remember I started writing about this in the, in the 90s. Um, by the time, I mean, Roosevelt was very shrewd, you know. It, it, on the one hand, um, he said he, he had the excuse. He wanted to get the New Deal through a heavily Southern racist Congress, and he didn't want to offend people who might stop that. But he, he did, in fact, compromise on the New Deal with Dixiecrats and segregationists quite a bit. Uh, but, but, you know, by the time McAlpin comes in, Roosevelt has been in office for almost 12 years. Mm -hmm. you know, so he, he, and he's the most popular man in America. He could do pretty much what he wanted. Um, and so I see the McAlpin coming in as, as connected to his decision to run for a fourth term. That he decided that he wanted all, he wanted people in the tent not outside. <laughs> and, and Mr. Sangstack opened up his pages to Roosevelt after that, did he not? He, he did. Um, Mr. Sangstack was, 
I should say that African Americans up until this era had voted overwhelmingly for the Republican Party right. out of out of respect for Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And in Chicago especially, but in the country as a whole, there was a concerted effort from local Democratic politicians to bring African Americans into the Democratic fold for the purpose of, of FDR's reelection as well as for local po political purposes. And so Mr. Sengstack was working with uh, Mayor Ed Kelly at the time, and that was also a, a factor in his, in his uh, decision to, uh, uh, to uh, allow reporting of, of, the, of the FDR administration in a way that um, could be seen as favorable. I would say that Mr. Sengstack, I, I worked for him in the, you know, many, many years later, and Mr. Sengstack never, ever interfered. He never violated that rule of uh, the firewall between uh, publisher and, and reporter. But the access was important, and the access gave people a different perspective and gave the newspaper a different perspective. And of course, there were people like Mary McLeod Bethune, mm -hmm. in the, uh, who was, uh, people may have heard of the, the Black Cabinet, uh, which was uh, really um, uh, a group of African-American officials in various federal agencies. But the queen of the Black Cabinet was Mary McLeod Bethune, who ran her own federal agency um, and uh, was a strong ally of, of Mr. Sengstack's. She was actually a friend of Mr. Abbott's, Mr. Mr. Sengstack's uh, uncle, mm -hmm. uh, who founded the Defender. And um, uh, on his deathbed, Mr. Abbott um, pretty much entrusted Mary McLeod Bethune with, with uh, guardianship of, of Mr. Sengstack and, and uh, the newspaper. Um, so there was, all these things were going that's on. Very, that's a touching scene in the book. I, 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 touching scene. I, I find Mary McLeod Bethune really one of the most um, uh, underappreciated figures in, in American history. Here was someone who who really through force of will and uh, the genius of her intellect was able to accomplish quite a bit um, despite the best efforts of, of others in the, in the administration and, and in the, the Dixiecrat-controlled Congress. Mm -hmm. So we get, it's interesting, uh, so the other part of the background is I worked in Chicago for, I lived in Chicago for 12 years before I came to New York, so I know some of the people he worked with and I moved in, press circles, and so, I mean, I was just a lowly grunt learning the trade then, so I wasn't sitting, I was not sitting at, in halls of power with his boss, I mean, but I did know him and did, did feel his aura as I moved around the city and uh, John Johnson and, and Jet Publications and Johnson Publications, I did know some of that. But, you know, you, th you look at this, uh, so Roosevelt is reelected and dies. And Truman, who is a problematic figure in many ways, comes along, and we don't know what Truman's going to do. You know, we don't know what Truman's going to do. And so Truman himself, immediately, Sengstack and the other of the black press people begin pressing Truman to desegregate the armed forces. And you think of it now, you think of it, the armed forces, by the time Colin Powell comes around as an officer in the 60s, Colin Powell in, says in his memoir, he, says, he talks about going into a restaurant in Alabama like 64, and he orders a hamburger, and the woman says to him, are you of Negro or Spanish extraction? And 
I can't serve you this hamburger. And Colin Powell writes in his memoir, he writes, you know, I felt at that time that the U.S. Army was the only healthy thing in America and that the rest of the country was really sick, particularly the South. But that, ha that transformation happens very quickly, right? Because by the time Truman comes in, you still have segregation, right? You still have fights near riots on army bases because blacks are, are kept in mosquito-infested houses in inferior quarters. And tell us a little bit how that plays out with the black press and, and Truman. Well, I can say this was, when I worked at The Defender, this was a story that was kind of handed down to us. And it was handed down to us this way, in that uh, the, the official story is that, um, you know, there were rumors even that, that uh, President Truman had been a member of the Klan right. as, as a young man. These, uh, Truman vigorously denied these rumors, but, but the rumors were out there. And he was from Missouri. He was, his record on race was mixed. He had voted in favor of most of the, of uh, the New Deal legislation, which which was friendly um, uh, to the civil rights cause, but but not every bill, and and not and he hadn't spoken out in favor of of the large African American population in Missouri, which he represented. Um, so the official story was that Mr. Sengstack confronted um, Mr. Truman, and uh, and and Truman's response was, "Judge me not on what I have done, but on what I will do." The actual story is probably more that it was a negotiating session in which Mr. Sengstack said, look, Chicago is at this moment the center of the African-American political universe. Chicago has... Was. A, 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 Black metropolis. It had, um, at that moment, I can't remember if Adam Clayton... Adam Clayton Powell had just been elected from New York, but... Bill Dawson had been serving for some time mm -hmm. um, on the south side of Chicago. Uh, on the south side of Chicago, and before the Bill District Obama came out, uh, and and, the, and before Bill Dawson, um, Oscar DePriest had been elected in 1928 as the first Republican African American representative in the Congress from the North, mm -hmm. and he was the only rep African American representative in the Congress um, for for quite some time. So Bill Dawson, his successor, in, who was a Democrat, um, and Mr. Sengstack worked assiduously to get Harry Truman elected. And they barnstormed around the country. They went to uh, places uh, uh, all over the South and all over um, uh, the North where there were concentrations of, of African Americans. And they did this because the deal with Truman was that he uh, would issue an executive order to integrate the U.S. Armed Forces, which he did several weeks before the election, and created a commission to make that happen and put Mr. Sengstack on the commission. So this was um, uh, an opportunity for Mr. Sengstack, and uh, he saw it as an opportunity for black America. But he also understood that if Truman was not elected, that Thomas Dewey um, was not uh, necessarily going to continue that program. Mm -hmm. So it was something very, um, uh, it was very, I would say, a pragmatic decision on Mr. Sengstack's part uh, and Bill Dawson's part as well to work that hard for, for Truman, who was a little bit of a question mark when it came to uh, where he stood on race relations. And um, then Mr. Sengstack and, and Bill Dawson worked very hard to 
um, uh, to make sure that uh, President Truman fulfilled that promise and didn't um, backtrack or waver in his... Yeah, they hawked him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> constantly. Mm -hmm. um, and made sure that he, he did what he had promised to do. Um, so there was, there was um, I would say, less, less good intentions and more pragmatism <laughs> than, mm -hmm. than is, probably, uh, is probably known even to the people who know that, that that is the way that the U.S. armed forces were integrated. Yes, true. And it's very interesting to um, you think about this, that just, just to go into a reverie for a moment, uh, the armed forces is the perfect place for social experiments. Why is that? It's because it has a chain of command. And if they tell you that you're going to stand on your head for 48 hours, that's pretty much what you're going to do. And if they, they determine where you're going to live, you, you just get up and go. And there was some friction. There was some friction in the armed forces. But in the end, by the time Colin Powell comes around, right, not just not that much later, it's only, it's only 15 years later, right? Right. So 48, he's 48 you know, decades of segregation is over, right? That, and then you have 15 years later, Colin Powell going into a segregated restaurant in the South saying, you know, we're the healthy people now. You, are, you all are the sick ones. So that's how fast things could happen. And, and you know, my, I often think about uh, had um, we gone into World War I, actually gone into World War I with an integrated military, the difference that would have made to sort of racial progress in this country. Well, and, and you're pointing out that this has been a cause for African Americans for many, many decades, really going back uh, to the Revolutionary War, in mm -hmm. which African Americans were simply insisting on being allowed to serve their country the same way that mm -hmm. everybody else was. And this had been um, uh, contested um, strongly by uh, the white establishment in the country for uh, that amount of time. The Spanish-American War was um, uh, uh, one of the first moments in which an African-American unit, National Guard unit from Chicago, was nationalized into the armed forces with African-American officers. Well, this was a big deal. There was an African-American colonel leading this unit. If that African-American colonel was to, um, it was John Marshall at the time, a descendant of the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, um, uh, it should be known. Yeah. And um, when, when Colonel Marshall uh, would, uh, would have been um, confronted by a white officer, the white officer would have had to salute him. Well, this was something that was, in the New York Times and other papers, was hotly debated. Would this be okay? Would the whole social order of the United States fall Collapse, apart? Right. Yeah. Um, in World War I, you had a very similar type of, of battle where uh, by then uh, Colonel Marshall had, had retired, but his successor... Uh, also was the head of the National Guard unit in Chicago, which had black officers from Colonel all the way down. Now, in wartime, that is a way for officers to get advancement. So that meant that a major could become a colonel, a colonel could become a general. This was seen as very dangerous by the white, southern-dominated um, uh, uh, U.S. military. So the solution they devised in World War I was to take the African-American units of the army and put them under French command. 
so that African-American soldiers had to operate with French uniforms, French um, weapons, French rations, which despite France's reputation were apparently worse than the American um, uh, rations. And, um, and even after the African-American soldiers distinguished themselves, there were still um, shenanigans when it came to, uh, for example, removing um, uh, the African-American colonel from his command and replacing him with a white officer. Um, when the African-American soldiers came back to the United States on the ship that they were uh, headed back, uh, on the ship going, coming back to North America, they were issued American uniforms, uh, and, and their French uniforms were confiscated because people realized, the, the white officers realized that this might look bad if they came back to the United States wearing French uniforms. So this, this, was, this was hotly contested. And many were decorated in France. Oh, the, 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 the record, the service record of African-American soldiers um, is exemplary. I mean, that, and that's something that goes back um, uh, to, uh, to the Revolutionary War as well. So there's no, I, I would, I, I, without having read every service record, I feel confident in arguing that um, the dedication and devotion of the soldiers was because they felt that they were carrying more than just their reputation on their shoulders. Sure. And, uh I skipped over something here. There was a, a campaign. I mean, Du Bois always talked about, you know, black Americans have a double, double consciousness, you know, being inside America and outside at the same time. Mm. And the, the black press in World War II embodied that because um, there, was a, there was a big provocative incident. There was a, a cook, a black cook named Dory Miller, was, who was present at the Pearl Harbor, attack of Pearl Harbor. And he was actually a cook. And so, and serving tables. He had no, no weapons training, but in the midst of the fight, he basically went out and seized a machine gun, I think shot down a plane or two and saved the lives of officers. And he was subsequently decorated, but only after the black press raised a hue and cry. That I'm telling you, if you, just, if you look at the articles at that time, and they talk about this man who's done all this valor, and, and, and they basically said he should be decorated and given a tour of black communities in the country. And they finally prevailed uh, with that. So, I mean, they had a, lot of, uh, had a lot of leverage. Oh, by the way, just a, a point of personal privilege. Um, one of my uncles who died 10 years ago was a tank, command, was a tank officer, tank um, uh, soldier under Patton. And uh, Patton took the first uh, black battalion, tank battalion, um, or division, and he met them at the dock, you know, and told them that everybody was watching them mm. and that they had to really perform. Uh, but in the meeting, he'd sent a letter back to the Pentagon because he was short of troops. As, as, the, as the Allies pressed into Europe, they were short of troops and equipment. Mm -hmm. And he sent back a letter saying, well, you know, even if you got to send me niggers, send them. Right. Uh, but my uncle used to say, he said, we knew Patton was racist, but we also knew he was a skilled general. And that if we stayed with him, we had the best chance of getting out alive. So we took it. And the segregation then was that they were, they were black. My uncle was a gunner and a driver of the tank. But they believed that black people weren't smart enough to command the tank. So they put a white commander in the tank 
to run it. So basically, in the name of segregation, they would put these people in, in the places where they were breathing in each other's faces. So they, it indirectly did something for integration, right? It, it indirectly did something. So and my uncle used to tell that story all the time. Uh, but tell, me, tell us a little bit about um, Mrs. But you you meet Sangstack in the '90s. Is near the end of his, or in the '80s or '90s? He's near the end of his life. What is he like? He's a. I once described him, by the way, in a New York Times Magazine article, as the Charles Foster Kane of the Negro press. Which which was a beautiful. Uh, you wrote really his obituary in, mm -hmm. in in the New York Times. It was a beautiful article, um, and I have to tell you, it was a uh, a guidepost for me as I as I. Uh, not just as I wrote the book, but also beforehand as I kind of conceived of the book. My um, uh, agent, uh, Rob McQuilkin, is here tonight, and this gives me an opportunity to thank him because as Rob and I came up with the, the concept of this book, it was, it was, um, uh, it was something that, that uh, your article was, was a guidepost for us in kind of deciding to do the entire history of the Chicago Defender. Um, uh, and it was something that was, um, I think you caught Mr. Sengstack's personality in a sense, in that he was opaque. He was not um, easy to read. He was intimidating. Um, he was a man of medium height and live um, uh, build. He wasn't... Um, uh, he wasn't someone who physically would have said, oh, uh, who, who is that? But nevertheless, he had that presence. He mm -hmm. had that aura. If I can tell a little anecdote about him and, and Mayor Daley, mm -hmm. um, shortly after I, I started working at the, at the Defender, I got... Two kings, the, one table. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm not sure if... I, I think Mr. Sextak was clearly the, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, the senior in that, in that royal family. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but Mr... Um, uh, Mr. Sengstack, um, uh, one time I was assigned to go cover an editorial board meeting with uh, Mr. Sengstack and Mayor Daly. This is the second Mayor Daly, the oh, son okay. of the first. Oh, the second Daly. Yeah. The first Mayor Daly was a different relationship, but the, with the second Mayor Daly, definitely Mr. Sengstack was the senior, and, and you'll see from the story how much uh, authority he commanded. Um, so um, I had one jacket and one tie and one pair of good khaki pants in those days, and so I put all those on and came to work uh, that day very excited to, to record this uh, editorial board meeting. And Mayor Daly and his bodyguards came into that beautiful Defender lobby that I, that I just um, uh, described a, a little while ago, and Mr. Sengstack came down a staircase. And as he came down, everyone said hello to him. He didn't speak a word. And he just walked up to Mayor Daly and pinched him by the elbow and began leading him back out the door. And the bodyguards and the aides are all kind of <laughs> looking about. And, and, and Mayor Daly just says, it's okay, Mr. Sengstack knows what he's doing. And, uh, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do, so I just stood there for a couple of minutes with my notebook and then went back to my desk, which overlooked 24th Street. Mm -hmm. And as I looked out the window, I saw Mr. Sengstack gesturing at the broken sidewalk on 24th Street. And Mayor Daly nodding and, and uh, 
Well, you probably can guess that the next morning, there were city crews out there repairing that sidewalk. And if you go to uh, 24th in Michigan today, the sidewalk looks pretty good uh, as a result. So, I mean, that was a very small um, example of Mr. Singh's tax clout, but I think it's, it's indicative of where he, he stood most of the time. There were always rumors about how fabulously wealthy the Sengs tax were, how fabulously powerful they were. In doing the research for this book, I saw that their, um, their wealth and their power was all within human confines, uh, well within human confines. They were never quite as wealthy, even as, as Mr. Johnson, who ran uh, mm-hmm. Ebony Jet. Um, but Mr. Sengstack liked to craft that aura in order to uh, magnify the power of the newspaper and magnify his influence um, when it came to making change for, mm-hmm. for the country. Yeah, these are quite some people. Let me take, let's take a few questions. We go. Uh, was anyone from the Defender or anyone from the African American press more broadly summoned to, be, uh, to appear before the McCarthy Senate Committee? Um, I don't believe so. I, they were not, un, they were very critical of, of McCarthy, but I think that they escaped that level of scrutiny. I'm trying to think though. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look and, and make sure. That's a good question. It's, it's worth a little bit more research, for sure. Um, your book devotes the majority of its discussion to its to its earlier to the earliest time of to the earliest time period. Can you discuss why you chose the early time period as opposed to the time when when you worked there? Well, so as as Rob and I conceived of this book, we thought of a lot of different approaches, and. Um, I thought at first, like, maybe I should tell my own story at The Defender, which it's true that I did have a transformative experience there, but frankly, it just seemed a little bit too kitsch to do a story of a white guy at a black newspaper, and it didn't seem... I could see the movie. Sure, sure. Um, maybe even a sitcom or something like that, but... Um, uh, but we Ryan Gosling? I'll, I'll take it. Um, uh, I'll take it. Um, but we realized that what we needed to do to really convey the power of the defender to effectively walk the reader through the, the experience of being at the defender to, you know, we could still smoke in the newsroom in those days, to inhale the, those vapors, that we needed to go all the way back mm-hmm. to the defender's um, earliest history. And it is, of course, an amazing history. It it begins at the 1893 World's Fair, where Robert Abbott is gathered together with Ida B. Wells and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, an entire new generation of African-American intellectuals under the great Frederick Douglass, whose statue I just saw coming into the building. Um, Frederick Douglass is 75 years old. He is master of the Haitian Pavilion at the World's Fair, and he inculcates this new generation of African-American activists with the, the source code for what's going to become the civil rights movement of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, these were all rumors and stories that were kind of passed down to mm-hmm. us at, as staff members at the Defender, but it was an immense privilege to go back and actually look at all of those moments, to reconstruct those moments, and to frankly verify the nobility and the dedication and the self-sacrifice of all these people. You know, when you, when you start doing historical research, 
you're never sure what you're going to find. Right. You know, you're never going to, you never know if you're, these people were philanderers or, or alcoholics or, I didn't find anything like that. The, yeah. the staff members at the Defender, Mr. Abbott, that who founded the Defender, literally went without food or clothing to make sure that his newspaper had uh, newsprint and ink. Um, he did everything to, to keep that paper alive. And um, I think that um, there really is no other way to, um, I, I remember when Rob uh, uh, and I finally came to the conclusion that I was going to have to do a hundred years of history. I said, is this, is this really the, the uh, am I really going to have to do this? And Rob encouraged me, and, and I really want to thank him for, for sticking with me through the very long process, the six years yeah. that it took to do this book. Um, that's short, my brother. <laughs> for, for, for history, that's short. It went fast. Yeah, no, that's pretty short. It went fast. Why did the Defender outlast other black newspapers? Um, it's a great question. The defender, the def I think it really is, comes down to the prudence of the owners, of Mr. Abbott and then of Mr. Sengstack and the family members that, that he uh, worked with who were also shared in the, in the ownership responsibilities, particularly his brother, Frederick Sengstack. Um, I can say that when I worked at the Defender, we were always furious with Mr. Fred, as we called him, because we always thought he was so cheap. <laughs> you know, he, he, we, back in those days, we had, um, you know, if you remember, you had to get uh, the crinkly kind of fax paper on those rolls, right. um, and it was pretty expensive. And Mr. Fred would come down and, and you know, and, and scrutinize every fax, you know, <laughs> because do you really need this fax? This paper is very expensive. And, and we could never understand why he was, he was nickel and diming every, everything. Then I came to run, after I left the Defender, I, I uh, ran a, a publication myself. Yeah. And I learned very quickly that unless you watch the nickels and dimes, you'll not be able to make payroll at the end of the month. Yeah. And... If you spend too much on your own salary, you won't be able to make payroll at the end of the month. You have to devote all of your intellectual resources to planning ahead when you're running a publication. You have to think about uh, not just that day's paper, but the next day and the next day and the next day. Mm -hmm. and, the, and Mr. Abbott learned very early that he needed to have that kind of prudence. He was the one that would pick up, he was known for picking up paper clips um, off the off the newsroom uh, uh, floor uh, and saving them. Um, he was he was that uh, 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 careful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you mind if I take a question? Um, what do you think about the new revelations that Carolyn Bryant admitted lying about uh, the Emmett Till case? This this is essential. People need to understand what this means. If you go back to the 1893 World's Fair and you read Ida B. Wells' booklet, which is uh, in many ways a prototype of the Defender and other black newspapers, uh, a booklet that she wrote for the World's Fair, it is an investigative report on lynching. 
in the United States. Was that States. Red Letter or was that, which one was that? It was uh, Why the Colored Man is Not at the World's Columbian Exposition. Mm -hmm. It was somewhat misnamed by the time it actually came out. It took her several months to raise the money to publish it. Mm -hmm. And it was somewhat misnamed. Um, what had happened is that there was a concerted effort from the organizers of the fair to exclude African Americans from the fair. But Frederick Douglass upended that entire uh, uh, plan by making himself um, ubiquitous mm -hmm. and using his celebrity to to, um, uh, to amplify the voices, not just of himself, but of other African-Americans um, at the World's Fair. Uh, and Ida B. Wells was his protege. She was in her early 20s and, and had just been uh, forced to leave Memphis. Um, now that's the movie. <laughs> that would be a great movie. Um, and it's Ida B. Wells in her booklet that first exposes lynching as a systematic form of oppression as part of a whole program that is designed to keep African-Americans in second-class citizenship throughout the South. And it's Ida B. Wells that first documents that lynching is almost always um, justified with an act of sexual violence, which is a fiction. In other words, it's always justified by saying, oh, this black man raped a white woman. And in almost every case, there was no rape. In many, many cases, there was an economic motive behind the lynching. The, in Ida B. Wells' case, some of her friends were lynched because they uh, ran a store in Memphis. In competition with white shop owners. That had been a monopoly up until that time. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they were killed essentially to keep the white monopoly in that town. And in case after case after case, if you start to pick apart the the um, alleged uh, 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 the allegations, you find that there was no sexual assault, or if there was a sexual um, consensual. Uh, sexual relationship, it was consensual, or um, uh, that there was no evidence at all linking the people who were accused to the, to the actual uh, uh, act. Mm -hmm. So this is essential to understand that Emmett Till was killed not because he actually did anything, but just because we were at a moment, I believe, in which uh, the white oligarchy felt threatened yeah. and they needed to find someone to make an example of. Uh, by the way, to this questioner, um, you may note, I, even, uh, the other day I wrote an editorial, I published an editorial on the New York Times editorial page about this very thing. The headline in the print edition was um, Black Lives, White Lies. The headline on, on, on the online publication was Black lives, white lives, black lives, white lives, and Emmett Till. Uh, I've been writing about this for at least 30 years, off and on. And I would say that um, in, in addition to uh, just the macro explanation that you give, and uh, the work of uh, Brian Stevenson in the South and, and the, in the racial justice work there, in, and I try to make this point in every editorial and column I write about lynching is that that period still hangs over the lives of the country, of black people in America, and especially in the South, because social relations were defined during that period, you know, and social relations aren't, often aren't spoken. They're what you're taught by your parents how to behave, you know. Uh, at the time uh, Emmett Till was killed uh, in Mississippi, sometimes there was you could be killed for what they used to call reckless eyeballing in the South. You know, for black men just looking at the wrong way at a white woman, and that kind of thing happened. So basically, the fact that we're still getting through this, and the, the point I made, the editorial point I made in the last editorial just a week ago, 
<coughs> was that when we look at Brian's revised testimony, we are, in fact, being made aware that there are today people who either participated with or witnessed racial terror, lynchings, still alive and walking around. And it wasn't that long ago. Um, oh, this is good. I can't do it, but you can. Could you please explain the significance of the Bud Billiken Day Parade? Oh, how lovely. What a great question. Uh -huh. um, so the Billiken Parade um, is the second Saturday in August um, in Chicago every year. It was uh, launched by the Defender, uh, by Robert Abbott in the 1920s, um, kind of during the, the, as the Depression was, was starting to impact um, the south side of Chicago. Mr. Abbott created the parade as a, a positive activity to um, involve and celebrate African-American children. The first couple of parades were held during the winter, um, which turned out to be a bad idea um, in Chicago, <laughs> right. um, as it would have been today in New York. But, right. um, uh, but eventually they settled on, on uh, August, and they picked, I think, you know, the, traditionally the hottest uh, week in the, in the, uh, uh, in the year, um, probably because they'd had the winter experience. Um, and it's a back-to-school parade. Um, it's, when I call it, when I, when I describe it this way, though, I, I need to immediately underscore that it is a political event as much as it is a celebration of, of children in the community. It's, it's both of those things. Um, it's a parade unlike any other in that you see groups of children marching. There's, you won't see big floats. You won't see the kind of um, uh, displays like you would in, a, in the Macy's Thanksgiving parade or something like that. Um, but you see a lot of military units, a lot of marching bands, a lot of um, uh, marching bands from uh, high schools and colleges. That are, This is part of a whole competition around the country. The Billiken Parade provides a venue for these young people in which they don't have to pay or which the fees are, are really reasonable. That's very helpful to a lot of the marching bands who have a, a smaller uh, budget. Um, but it's also the most important political event of the year. By 1919... Carl Sandburg, the great chronicler of Chicago, had rated Chicago's African-American community the strongest political unit in the United States. Not the strongest African-American political unit, the strongest political unit, period. Those 50,000 votes could be dedicated to a mayor, a congressman, a senator, a governor, um, and a president. By the time Robert Abbott starts the parade 10 years later, Every politician in Illinois is excited to, to participate in the Bud Billiken Parade, and that tradition continues today. Yeah. And uh, I remember um, I was there when Barack Obama did his first march in the Billiken Parade. I don't remember him, but I've read accounts of... Uh, there's a reason why I don't remember him, because the accounts of him marching in that first parade were that he was there with uh, about eight or nine supporters and no banner, no T-shirts, and was just stunned at the... He, he wasn't from Chicago, and he didn't know this, this tradition. And he was stunned by not just the size of the crowds, because there's usually over a million people lining the, the parade routes, but also by their political sophistication. 
They were cheering for Republicans who had done, white Republicans who had uh, paid their respects to the African-American community, and they were booing um, uh, black Democrats who had not um, paid their respects to the community or had done something uh, to offend the community. Mm -hmm. Well, the next time Barack Obama was in the Billiken Parade, he made sure that everybody had T-shirts and banners and that there was a large crowd. And after he became a U.S. senator, he became grand marshal, or while he was campaigning, uh, for the Senate, he became Grand Marshal of the Billiken Parade and has served uh, served as the the um, uh, the Grand Marshal of the Billiken Parade twice <coughs> since then. Since and has dispatched as president, he wasn't able to become Grand Marshal. Right. Um, but he sent his top advisor, Valerie Jarrett. She was Grand Marshal, and and other top officials from his administration um, have continued to serve as Grand Marshal. I see. And we're hopeful <clears throat> for this year, by the way. Last question. <laughs> Last question. Um, could you talk briefly about the Defender's role in the Great Migration? Sure. So the Defender was really the, the institution that launched the Great Migration. It was, and I have to say, it was not immediately supportive of the Great Migration. Robert Abbott had come to Chicago himself as a migrant from the South. And Robert Abbott was a brilliant young man who already had a degree from Hampton, what's now Hampton University, then as now one of the premier um, African-American uh, colleges and universities in, in the country. Um, Robert Abbott then got a law degree in Chicago he could not find work either as a lawyer or as a printer because the color bar was there when it came to uh, the legal profession mm -hmm. and when it came to any of the, uh, uh, any of the trades, uh, printing or um, even uh, working in a slaughterhouse or a factory, um, uh, you, could not, you could not get past the unions who would not admit African-American members. <clears throat> so when People first, during World War I, when, when people started to, to encourage African-Americans to come uh, north because the unions, um, suddenly the, the slaughterhouses and the factories in Chicago needed uh, workers. The immigrants from Europe had stopped coming, of course. The demand from, for American products had surged. The only available source of labor in the country were, was the African-American community essentially in the South. Still, Mr. Abbott didn't support that. He said, a job is, you can get a job in Birmingham the same way that you can get a job in Chicago. Why would you come up here where uh, the level of segregation is really not that different? What changed for Mr. Abbott was when he saw that in Jacksonville, Florida, the stevedores departing um, on one particular night, all of the stevedores in, uh, left on one particular night. They, they'd organized, they'd gotten recruited by uh, the port in Newark and um, they decided that if they trickled out or if they announced that they were leaving, that they would uh, face some sort of retribution, retribution from, their, from the white uh, owners of the docks. So what they decided to do was to just disappear one, one evening. Well, the next day, the port in Jacksonville just could not function because the white bosses of these stevedores couldn't do the work. And when Robert Abbott saw that this could be a weapon, that the migration could be a weapon against Jim Crow, that it could be used to undermine the Southern economy, that's when he began, began endorsing the, um, the migration. And I should say, by this time, the Defender already had news coverage of Chicago 
um, uh, in its front pages and had separated its editorials into the editorial section. And what that meant was that the coverage of Chicago was realistic on the front pages so that people knew that it was not a paradise. They could trust the defender. And then when the editorials said, you should still come here, it's not a paradise, but it's better, and you'll be hurting the South and helping yourself, um, that's when the, the migration started to happen. And by the end of World War I, the African-American population in Chicago had doubled from around 50,000 to around 100,000. I say around because people were moving through Chicago right. to Another Detroit place. and right. Rockford right. And, uh, uh, and many other towns throughout the, the, the Midwest, especially. So this was the beginning of this movement. That's the beginning. The word movement actually comes from from uh, to, to describe a political movement, I believe, comes from that era. Um, so the the defender really launched this effort. Um, of course, the migration kind of started to work on its own steam after a while, mm -hmm. but but the defender always regarded it as part of its political program to uh, fight back against Jim Crow. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Brent Staples and Eitan Micheli. Micheli? Okay. Um, please stay for the book signing. I'm sure there's lots more that we didn't hear about in the book, right? So please stay. He'll be signing the book near the Central Park West Side. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. Thank you all for coming tonight. We loved having you on this uh, cold, snowy day. And we'll see you all again. Thanks a lot. Thank you.